It's the start of our second session on virtues, second session on the passions and virtues. So before we do anything else, so the bundle we went through last lecture I said was going to take us through two lectures. I have given you another bundle that we might touch on but probably won't, um, but I've handed them out in case we do. I've also given you a bundle there, or rather two sheets of examinations of conscience. Uh, on one level I'm giving you that for your possible own sanctification, but also to give you a model of how what we're looking at here in theory has practical applications. So most of you have probably in your years um, done an examination of conscience through the Ten Commandments. That is, in the tradition, the most standard way of doing it. The Ten Commandments are good for a checklist. They're good for a minimal listing of mortal sins. They're less good if you're wanting to grow in holiness, to look in sins that aren't just mortal, but to look more fully at your life. So the two examinations I've given you there, one for priests, one for seminarians, um, they're structured around the seven deadly sins. So if we're taking a virtue approach to sin, we're therefore going to look at the vices, the seven deadly sins. Um, and because a lot of those, this question of a spectrum, excess deficiency, isn't just a matter of mortal sin or not. Um, so there's more detail there. Um, there's always a risk with a detailed examination of conscience of scrupulosity. So um, it may be your spiritual director says to you, if you start using this, um, there's something out of kilter in how you're confessing, that you're being obsessive, scrupulous, you're looking at the wrong kind of detail. So this was designed primarily for guys coming saying, oh, I haven't committed any sins or I can't think of any sins. Two pages of size eight font, I've thought of a few for you, yeah? Um, <laughs> but be careful if in your own tendency um, you might have a risk of being obsessive with detail. Um, one of the forms of scrupulosity you might run in with that would be the kind of confession where you confess an awful lot of detail about some small things, but there are probably some other big things in your life you don't touch on at all. You could be like the housewife who comes to confession and confesses that she tasted the soup that was for Sunday lunch and broke the Eucharistic fast. But she doesn't say anything about the fact she screamed and yelled and was abusive to her husband on the way to Mass. There's a type of confession where we're seeing the small details and actually not seeing the more significant things in our life. Um, that's one of the things. So I always go to confession to my spiritual director. When I see my spiritual director, I see him about once a month go to confession about once a week. But I make a point of going to confession to him so there's that regular point of content, contact for him to say to me, there's something either in balance or not in balance here. So I say all that 
about those examinations I've given you. Um, and primarily giving them to you as a model of how what we're looking at in theory in class has practical implications in terms of growth in the spiritual life. So put those away now. We're now going to look at the lecture. Um, first thing to do today, remember what we did last time. So I have left, and nobody's rubbed this out, which means presumably nobody else uses the whiteboard. Um, I'm going to ask random people here in the room to explain to me what different parts of this mean. So let's start here at the top. We've got donut, passions, appetite, apprehension. Um, Michael, explain to me what that's about. Passion's kind of a more detailed manifestation working of the appetite. It moves you to this thing you have apprehended. So you apprehend something, you see it, not necessarily with your physical eye, you see it with your mental eye as a matter of knowledge. It triggers something within you. The base level you have your various appetites within the human person, more specifically the passions, and they move you to this thing you have apprehended. It might move you in the sense of moving you away. So if you have the passion of fear, when you see the rector coming down the corridor for you, um, that is a movement, a, a passion. Um, the, but you have to apprehend it first of all. And as you noted, real or apparent, you can mistakenly engage with something in an apparent good, and what that triggers, therefore, is not a proper, properly ordered passion. It's a real passion, but not properly ordered. Brother Adam? Does the term concupiscence fall under appetite? Because it's like with desire, appetite's kind of like that tendency to be drawn to something or to like uh, stray away from stray away from something. So what does the word concupiscence refer to? Um, in the catechism, what it refers to, and in the bulk of the Christian tradition, what it refers to is the fallen skewing within our passions, um, that there is a disorder in there. Um, so literally, though, it means with passion. So in St. Thomas, he will use the word concupiscible, not necessarily meaning disordered, just it's a thing with passion. The catechism, and generally speaking, when we talk about concupiscence, the tradition has come to use that term referring to the disorder in our passions. So my appetites in themselves are so basic that they're not disordered. The appetite, in the, the rational appetite, the sensitive appetite, but kind of bouncing around within them is this disorder called concupiscence, which means what I get moved to is either too much, too little, 
or I reach for something that appears good even though it isn't really good. Is there a better term to use that's not associated with like a bad representation of concupiscence? So like a synonym that would be synonymous to uh, concupiscence, um, but kind of have us grasp a more positive view of, of that reality? I guess you could say desire. Another way of answering the question is it depends who you're talking to. So if I was talking to parishioners, in a sense to general Catholics, I'd only ever use the word concupiscence in the negative because that's how it's more broadly understood. When I'm with a group of well-educated, fellow Thomistically inclined scholars, I will refer to the concupiscible powers of the sensitive appetite. And that can also be referred to what powers? Irascible. So there's the concupiscible and the irascible. So the concupiscible either move you to something desirable or cause you to flee away from something bad. The irascible, so an irascible person is someone who's angry all the time. Why do they get angry? Because there's something to respond to, a problem that needs conquering. Within you, the irascible power of the sense of appetite rises up when there's a situation that isn't just a matter of go for it or flee from it, but somehow needs to be conquered. Um, and that's a loss in life. Okay, so the passions get triggered by something you see. I said there's an interrelationship between the intellect, the will, and the passions. Who can describe to me how what gets triggered kind of this interplay between intellect and will. Can you help us out here? This is a bit more technical. Uh, I know ideally there, you, you're going for an integration of all three and the, the will and the passions follow the, the intellect. No way the intellect is the guiding uh, force here in a way the authority the authority. Um, yeah, I know that's the goal. So the goal is integration, all three pulling you to the same thing. But when we don't yet have that integration... Your, your intellect... You have to use your intellect and will to order your passions. That have it. Like your passion will pull you to or away from something, and the interrelationship comes when the intellect and the will kick in. Okay, let's take a step back. Do you remember I used the word political maneuvering, quoting St. Thomas? That he referred, he says, the intellect can't command the passions. My intellect and will can't say, um, be afraid now, or be daring now. But my intellect and will can kind of maneuver my passions. How, how does that political maneuvering work? John Paul, can you? Yeah, uh, it said that contemplation seems to increase or decrease the passions, desires. Like whatever we focus on, we can focus on particular aspects of the thing. Um, like more, it's more guiding the passions. Um, also, that the will can direct the intellect's reasoning and can choose. 
Yes, though there's actually two different things. So there's on one, when the three things are still fighting against each other, my passions push me one way and my will nonetheless decides the opposite. The passions move me to the pile of ten donuts, but my will says, no, that's a bad decision and I don't do it, but my passions are moving me there. You described the will can command the intellect to think about a different aspect. Uh, Jake, describe the ten donuts to us in that regard. Okay. Um, and you think about how many hours you're going to have to work out in the gym and how uh, my beautiful beach body will not look like a beautiful beach body. Uh, <laughs> it will look terrible. Um, and so I'm seeing the same thing, but my will is moving my intellect to focus on a different aspect of the reality there so that I engage with it differently intellectually in what St. Thomas calls the intentional object and that triggers a different passion. So the same pile of ten donuts I look at just thinking delicious and my passions say go for it and my will then is in a battle with them if it's going to choose the right thing. Whereas my intellect can see the pile of ten donuts and think 50,000 calories and just the instant I start focusing on that aspect of the reality, what's triggered in my passions changes. Now, how do we make that happen on a stable, ongoing basis? What's on the board here is the thing that we have to do to stabilize Repetition, right. So we don't do it just once, we do it again and again and again. So I make that right decision once and then I make that right decision again and I make that right decision again and that repetition just habituates that whole process including the process of my thinking. So there are intellectual virtues as well as moral virtues in my will and virtues that are seated in my passions. They're different virtues perfecting different aspects of me. But the habitual process by which I go down to the refectory and you know that table, it's not the salad bar table and it's not the main table, it's the table with the bad stuff on it, yeah? Now I can come down and that's always the first table I go to look at to see what's here today. Um, or I can habituate myself to just always walk past it. Um, repetition, repetition, repetition. I habituate my passions, I habituate my activity 
so that the judgment that at one level in my intellect, when I think slowly and carefully, I know what I want to do. The decision that in my will that's kind of hard and tough, I know it's the right thing and I follow that careful judgment in my intellect. By repetition, slowly my passions become habituated so that they also pull me to the same thing. And then I have this integration of intellect, will, and passions, and it all becomes easy. Might just be the example you're using, but like habituating yourself to never look at the dessert seems almost like you're repressing your emotions. Yes, okay. And we're actually going to come on to something linked with what you're implying there. So that's, let's come back to that in a, in a moment. The difference between repressing an emotion and forming it. Um, okay, um, let's see. So I'm going to come back to that. First of all, before we leave recapping from last time, the virtuous mean. Francisco, explain the virtuous mean to us. The virtuous mean it doesn't mean that through through repetition you'll come to to have that integration between the, the virtues and the vices and allows you to which doesn't mean that it's the middle in between both of them, but it lies somewhere in between and that's the virtue. That's the virtuous person who goes through the means of between vices. Okay, good. So every way, every action that is done perfectly, there's two ways it could go wrong in terms of the moral actions, uh, what we'll call the moral virtues. Um, it can be too much or too little. Now, I said moral virtues. We won't, in this course, elaborate on them. You have hopefully read this part of the Catechism. The theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Now, you cannot love God in excess. So the question of excess and deficiency doesn't exist with respect to love of God. Hope, likewise a theological virtue, adhering you directly to him, you cannot hope too much. You can hope in a stupid way, uh, in a way that isn't really hope, but that isn't too much. That's just hope in something he hasn't given you reason to hope in. So if you go up to the bell tower and jump off, hoping and trusting that God will save you, well, God hasn't told you to do that. God hasn't told you that he will rescue you if you jump off the tower. To jump off the tower is not super faith, real hope. It's just stupid. Um, it's putting your trust in something God didn't say. And generally speaking, that's not faith, that's some form of superstition. Trusting in something God didn't say. So these three virtues, faith, hope, and charity, you can't have too much of. But all kinds of other aspects of human activity, what we generally refer to as the moral virtues, they can go wrong in two ways, too much or too little. So, um, uh, Frank, explain courage to me in this regard. 
unnecessary risks uh, when they shouldn't is important. And in terms of excess deficiency? And generally speaking, we would say courage is closer to being foolhardy than being a coward. It's in between, but that doesn't mean it's halfway. Um, in contrast, chastity, we said too much of the desire for sex is what we call lust. But there's a way of having too little, a disdain, a awkwardness that we'd call frigid. Um, St. Thomas in commenting on this says this phenomenon is so rare he says we don't even have a word for it he creates this word unfeelingness now if he was an Italian passionate Italian I suspect if he had been a cold Englishman he'd have said oh we have a word for that we call it frigid um, so yeah anyway um, there's not quite a word for it because it's so rare. So chastity, that mean, is closer to that tightness of self-control as opposed to human activity in general. What's much more common is the excess of lust. So every sphere of activity, it can be as moral virtues, too much or too little. The right measure is somewhere in between. Here I said the measure according to reason or the measure according to faith. Have I got that elsewhere? Yes, we're going to come on to that. Okay, we'll, we'll come on to that later. Let's go to page six on my notes now. Or any questions before we move on? Page six of the one. Sorry, the, the, the old notes, the notes from last time. So page six, last lecture's notes. Halfway down the page, there's a section called vice and incontinence. And this relates to the question Adam was just asking about. Now, Aristotle, he distinguishes, this is from the Nicomachean Ethics. You may already have done this. He distinguishes eight types of people. And whenever you have a series of distinctions like this, um, What's really the purpose of all these distinctions is to show us what we're aiming for, and these other things are a point of contrast. But let's run through these. So, it says, there are people that are beast-like. They have neither reason nor will. They're just grubbing around at what's desirable. And to some extent, we all know people like that. And we all know moments in ourselves when we get a bit like that. Then he says there are people who are godlike, who have perfect reason and perfect will, and seem to have been born thus. Do we all know such annoying individuals? Yes. <laughs> that, that, there are people that it just all looks easy. It's all integrated. The reason, the will, it all seems to the godlike. Now, more interesting for us. There are the continent who refuse to follow their pleasurable appetites and follow reason instead. Versus the incontinent who have good reason, but they are weak. 
and they follow their pleasurable appetites instead. So back to my donuts, or not having them. Um, so the incontinent man sees the pile of ten donuts, and he knows he shouldn't have them. He knows. He's been told a thousand times by everybody else, and any time he thinks more than a few minutes, he knows he shouldn't have ten donuts. But he's weak. He's not in control, and he eats them all. So there's obviously not virtue there. He doesn't even have self-control. The continent man, he also sees the ten donuts, and his passions are moving him very strongly to have them all. They look right to him, but he is in control. He is continent, and he refuses to go along with his pleasurable appetites, pleasurable desires. Continent. But that isn't virtue, because there's still a war within him between choosing the right thing and his passions moving him to the wrong thing. Then there's the soft, who have good reason, but they are weak, and they do not resist pains. Versus the enduring, who resist pains and follow reason instead. So you, am I going to go to the gym this afternoon? Am I going to work out? It will be painful. I will get no joy from it. <laughs> it is the right thing to do because I'm out of shape. I know it's the right thing to do, but in my passions, I'm just, I'm soft. I see the pain and I just give in and I don't do it. Versus the man who sees the pain and his passions are moving him to say, don't do it. But his will is strong, and he goes and does it anyway. But there's this battle within him. Point of contrast, where this is all, in a sense, really heading, the virtuous. The virtuous who follow good reason with ease. They have trained their passions to pursue good and resist evil. So the man of virtue, he sees the pain of the gym workout this afternoon, but his passions are in harmony with reason, and he sees that pain, and the passion that is triggered is still nonetheless moving him to the right thing. He sees, in, even in his passions, past the pain to the good that is there to be pursued. Similarly with the donuts. He sees the donuts are delicious, but he sees even more just how 10 of them is out of order, eating them during mass is not in the right context, that all kinds of things, just there's a harmony within him of his intellectual judgment, his passions, and it's really easy, therefore, for his will to choose the right thing. A harmony of intellect, passions, and will. the vicious man, last of the eight. They follow a corrupted reason, but they still reason. They are not the brutes, the beast-like. They have passions in harmony with their corrupted reason. So, the ten donuts. Back to the ten donuts. 
the vicious man knows that ten donuts are ten donuts. He's not ignorant of that. But he has just decided that he would rather have the overweight lifestyle, the not being able to get around properly, the needing to buy a car with a larger seat. Um, that he knows the whole package. He has chosen that measure and everything that goes with it. And he is habituated by repetition, his passions, to just see ten donuts and think, yeah. At the level of his intellectual judgment, he has chosen that. His passions are habituated to move to that. And the decision of the will chooses it. There's an integration there, but an integration pursuing evil, not an integration pursuing good. Now, if he simultaneously not only has chosen that lifestyle, intellectually evaluated that lifestyle, if he knows that lifestyle is contrary to God's will, then he also uh, has contempt for God. But in a sense, that's not necessarily, that contempt of God is a particular vice in itself. You can have that vice of having chosen a gluttonous life without also having contempt for God in knowing that that's contrary to what he wants. Many of us have different aspects of our life where we somehow just kind of push God out and we, when we're kind of doing that thing, we just kind of don't think too much about him, um, which is different from knowing what he wants and in contempt for God consistently choosing something contrary to it. So these eight categories. Adam, does this come back to your thing about... Remind me what your question was? I've forgotten. Oh, it was... Repression. repression, right. So the continent man is just repressing his emotions or passions. They're there, and he just says no. Whereas the virtuous man has trained his passions to be different. Trained his passions to themselves move him to the thing that his intellect has identified as being the healthy, appropriate thing he's aiming for, wants to aim for. Yeah. Um, what is the difference between suppression and repression in terms of passion? I think those would be modern psychological terms rather than St. Thomas's. They also wouldn't be the catechism's terminology. So I think you'd it would depend what psychologist you were reading, what they would mean by those terms. So I don't have a particular meaning I'm going to put on those two words. Is contempt of God related to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or are we talking about completely different things? Could be related, but I'm not going to make any connection in this context. Um, yeah, you can ask me about that later if you're interested. But... Um, Okay, further up that same page, vice. Just what is meant by vice? Hopefully this is already kind of clear. A vice, what is it? It's a perversion of a passion. A footnote where in the catechism it says that. A vice is a perversion of reason. But reason, I know, it still functions. I.e., a vicious man has corrupt reason and uses his reason 
to seek what is evil. That the gluttonous man is thinking as he is hunting the donut. Yeah? He doesn't have an absence of reason. It's just a corrupted reason. And then quoting the Catechism, uh, in vice, the habitus is oriented towards sin, fostered by a repetition of a sinful interior act. Directly quoting, thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself. Any questions on this section? Okay, page seven. Now we're getting a bit more technical. We're throwing in a completely different thing here. A word I have not used in any of this analysis of virtue and the pursuit of good is grace. Now what moves us to do the right thing? Ultimately, it's got to be grace. Yeah, It's got to be God. If we're not Pelagian, anytime we do God good, it's only his grace within us moving us. Now, how in the tradition is that described? So Aristotle, if you, you know what you're doing with um, .d, Aristotle didn't know the Lord Jesus. Aristotle didn't know about grace. One of the problems Aristotle has that you will, I'm sure, touch on is actually therefore describing how change happens at all. So as Christians, we have this awareness of this reality, grace, that makes it possible for a man to convert, makes it possible for a man to change. Aristotle didn't know about that, but Aristotle did know about virtue. He did know it's possible to be habituated in the good, did know it's possible to change. So, if we're gonna compare Aristotle and St. Thomas, Aristotle had what we broadly speaking call the natural virtues. He didn't know the supernatural. He has the natural virtues. Natural virtues we talk about being acquired by human effort. Just like the athlete training, his decision, his willpower, his repetition, he acquires these natural habituses, these natural habits. There are also, though, supernatural habits, supernatural virtues that are in us not by our own power, but by grace. These are not acquired by human effort, but are infused by God. That's the broad distinction here. Now I'm going to unpack that and what's on the page there. So top of the page, acquired natural virtues and infused supernatural virtues. Um, so the natural virtues or human virtues or moral virtues all terms for the same thing. Natural virtues can be acquired by human effort, i.e. by repetition of the same interior act. And the athlete is our standard image for seeing how that happens. This is where I like struggle um, understanding like the natural virtues. Like, so we know God does everything in our lives. But then, like, everything good. We talk about, yeah, but then we talk about human effort with the natural virtues. It's just like, but you still didn't do anything. Is that correct? You cooperated with his grace. That's a real thing that you did. He is the primary agent, but you are a real secondary agent 
in cooperating with that. And it is in your power to thwart grace. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, so you do have a real thing you can do. You can mess it all up. Um, <laughs> conversely, though, you have the real capacity to cooperate with that grace. And so my point to you is that that is actually a real thing. If you really have the capacity to ruin it, you also really have the capacity to cooperate with it. And that that is a significant act, cooperation. Come back to that thought, because as I unpack this, maybe it'll become clearer. Contrast with the supernatural virtues. So I say the supernatural virtues are directly infused by God into the soul. I say we cooperate with this process by repetition of the related acts, but the virtues are nonetheless infused. And do you know that the word repetition is in both of those, both in the natural and in the supernatural? So on one mundane level, how do you grow in the natural? How do you grow in the supernatural? Repeating, repeating, repeating. Um, but when you repeat in a natural act, like the athlete, it's your own power causing the increase. When you repeat with a supernatural act, what you are doing each time you do the right action is you remove the obstacle to grace. Doing the action well, cooperating with grace well in the individual act, removes the obstacle for more grace to be infused. So it's God who's doing that infusion, but doing the right action enables more grace to be infused. So both ways, repetition is what causes, kind of from your angle, causes the increase. Let's look at some examples. Natural and supernatural virtues. I say they have the same matter, but a different end, and the mean changes. For example, temperance in food, or moderation in food. Say so A, as a natural virtue, temperance governs dieting in accord with the reason. Dieting calls for food to be restricted to the amount the body needs. The needs of the body dictate neither too much nor too little. I reason without faith can see this, and the natural virtue is directed to the good of bodily health. Yet everything I've said there, you don't need to be a Christian, you don't need to know there's a God, all of that you can figure out. Natural virtue, using reason at that level. But the same sphere I say as a supernatural virtue, temperance govern, governs fasting in accord with faith. Fasting calls for less food than the body needs. Fasting subordinates the needs of the body to a higher end, i.e. union with God. That the supernatural virtue is directed to the good of union with God, not to the good of your bodily health. Now we do also, as Christians, have the commandment to care for our body, not to damage our body. So we shouldn't fast 
in such a continual excessive way that we damage our body but fasting is not the same thing as dieting yeah? both fasting and dieting both are restricting the amount you eat but they're aimed at different goods and they have different measures so a different end a different measure and it's only the fasting that has the supernatural end you with me on that distinction? let's look at my second example here prudence so I say quoting the catechism what is prudence? prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason practical reason meaning the doing of stuff, the thinking about what to do. How should I act? Um, I ask the question here. I say, this is a natural virtue. I say, Aristotle knew of it without knowing Christ. Aristotle practiced it without knowing Christ. For example, how far to jog in order to be fit but not waste time on excess exercise? And I say, prudence is the virtue that habitually answers that question. And that's going to be a question concerned with the health of the body, because you don't know about God if you're just in the natural realm. I say, though, that prudence can also be a supernatural virtue. I say, as supernatural, its end is in God and life in union with him. So for example, how does jogging aid me in acquiring my end in God? So that's a different end, a different mean and measure. Let's pause with that example because this is an important one for seminarians, for young men. So our culture has the cult of the body. I was down on the OSU campus a couple of weeks ago for that planetarium thing on the Big Bang. Fascinating. As we were going in, it looked like every jock uh, or everyone on the campus just seemed to be these perfectly built jocks. Um, and I was just thinking, yeah, that's where the young men of our culture, generally speaking, are coming from, with a, a pursuit of the body that's just excessive. But that's all there is. Um, but if you also are God's creation, if you are supposed to take care of the body, in order to serve God, that same activity, exercise, good eating, general health, that needs to be ordered to him and is therefore a supernatural end. So there are lots of priests who are fat and unhealthy and die before they needed to die and are not able to serve God and serve God's people the way they could if they lived longer and lived a healthier life. You owe it to God, you owe it to his people to be healthy. But that's a very different end in your activity, in your exercise from the I want to look good on the beach. Yeah? It's not bad to look good on the beach, but 
when you're exercising, you need to be honest and asking yourself the question, what am I thinking about as I'm doing this? Am I thinking about my beach body? Um, or um, are you thinking of just this general awareness as a seminarian, as a future priest, as a priest, being healthy is just a thing I should be. Yeah? What if you either can't determine your motivation or don't trust that you have correctly determined your motivation? Your motivation or your intellectual judgment? Which you, uh, so like when, when I'm deciding to go to the gym, what if I don't know or trust whether or not I'm doing it for the beach body or for the service of God? Okay, so let me split apart a few things there. One thing, you want to try and gain the clarity in your intellectual judgment. So before you're thinking about what you're feeling, am I clear about the right measure intellectually? Then at the level of my passions, um, my passions, because of concupiscence, will always have a mixture of good and bad in them. So yes, there's going to be parts of me that's thinking of my beach body and parts of me that's thinking a good seminarian does this. The rule of life, the benchmarks for formation talk about this. This should be part of what I am. But there's a mixture of both of those within me. The saints talk frequently about this thing, rectitude of intention, correcting of intention. So I need to see the right judgment measure in my intellect and choose correctly. I see it and I choose it, purifying it of the extraneous kind of non-good bits. And that rectitude of intention in the correct choosing pulls with it the orientation of my passion and by that correct choosing again and again and again I will gradually habituate my passions the right way and then in our fallen state often we do even with habituation have to push past our passions or push past my physical tiredness so I was up late last night doing something for somebody and it wasn't my laziness that caused me to not have enough sleep or the thunder and lightning last night kept me awake. I didn't sleep well, I woke up, I was genuinely tired. Not my fault, but that does mean I am aware I need to push past that ugh in my body because I, I know the right thing. But repetition so Saint, use this phrase again of St. Thomas that it isn't in the Catechism, intentional object. Think clearly, what is it I'm choosing? View it as truly, as purely as I can and choose it. And that act of choosing again and again and again pulls the passions, habituates the passions so that they too move you to the same thing on future occasions. Self-knowledge, self-honesty, this and many questions um, 
we lie to ourselves to different degrees. Um, that's why we talk about these things in spiritual direction. That's why we should talk about them with our, our brothers. Um, whenever we find ourselves doing things to some extent on the sly, in secret, feeling embarrassed to mention them to others, that's not a good sign. Um, part of how we gain that self-knowledge, self-honesty is in that openness and disclosure to others. All of which I'm saying in light of the question of choosing the right thing and choosing it therefore habitually. Intellectual and moral virtues. Um, we could spend a long time on this. Um, we're not going to. Um, intellectual and moral virtues. Um, I'm just going to note briefly, every single sphere of your functioning has a right and a wrong way of doing it, a right and a wrong way of being habituated in it, Right thinking, the intellect, has virtues that relate to thinking, to have patterns, habituations of right thinking, not just patterns of right doing. Um, over the page, the theological virtues, I've mentioned these already briefly. Um, so I see the theological virtues, faith, hope, charity, these are not like the moral virtues. These directly attach you to God. There isn't a sense of there being a natural version of these three. Um, Frank, can you read the first quote there, the human virtues? There's the top of page eight. Michael, if you could read the next one. Theological virtues are the foundation of Christian moral activity. They animate it and give it its special character. They inform and give life to all the moral virtues. They are infused by God. So I mentioned the different moral virtues at a natural level being capable of having a supernatural end. By having the three theological virtues infused in you, that's part of what that process is that orients those moral virtues to a different end. Um, the detail of how that working happens, different saints and scholars have some arguments, but we're not going to get into that in this course. Um, so faith, hope, love. Um, faith, I say, the virtue residing in the intellect to perfect the intellect. It unites us to God by enabling us to assent to what has been revealed by God. I, it penetrates beyond reason. Josh, can you read the next quote from the Catechism? Mm -hmm. Faith is a theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us. And that Holy Church proposes for our belief to be 
because he is true himself. And again, that can be habitual. I can either on each occasion kind of battle with trusting him, or I can many acts of accepting what he said, many acts of trusting what he said, just be habituated that that in my thinking is just how I respond. I note two vices that oppose faith, lust and gluttony. So these fix man on sensible pleasures and blind the intellect. So, sadly this is most obvious with lust, but we know with ourselves at some moments, but we can see in others too, to be immersed in lust, we fail to think properly anymore. Our vision of God is lost. So the Lord says, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. Not just God directly, but even the things of God. My ability to see with faith, see the realities of the world with that clarity of faith is clouded when I'm inflamed with lust, is clouded when I'm inflamed with gluttony. So I overcome that by disciplining the body. So abstinence, chastity, so fasting is one of the things that bridles the passions, St. Thomas says. Fasting is one of those things that just clears the intellect. And if you go on a long fast, a three, five day fast, that clarity is sometimes even more obvious. Um, whereas the giving in to the passions in lust and gluttony and our thinking just becomes more and more clouded. And those friends of ours who are in different ways immersed in unchastity frequently don't even see anymore what's wrong the intellect becomes clouded and loses the ability to make proper judgments about right and wrong, about particularly about those things, but more generally too. Okay, next say, faith and hope can exist without love. So you can know in your intellect, but not love. You can, to some extent, hope and still not have love. Love is the ultimate end the queen of the virtues. Um, but I say no infused virtue can exist in the soul without faith. So you can't aim to God without having faith in him, without knowing him in faith. Um, say hope resides in the will to perfect the will, unites us to God by a supernatural awareness of our dependence on him and inclines us to call on his power Whereas love, divine charity, skipping ahead to the next section there, uh, resides in the will to perfect the will, unites us to God directly, loves God as a friend, loves a friend, and loves others for reason of our love of God. Um. Okay, I'm gonna move on and briefly because uh, we, we've actually done better this year than I was expecting us to do. Um, but I'm going to move on and try and 
introduce so if you turn to the next bundle of notes I've given you for today actually more specifically there was a single sheet that's got a table on it yeah um, Yeah, the, the table like this, it's got charity. Um, now, we just talked about charity as an infused gift. We talked earlier in the course, this desire for happiness within you, it's just there, you want to be happy. The more clearly you see where that's heading, you realize the desire to be happy and the desire for God is actually the same thing. He is the good. He is the one of whom beatitude just is a part of what he is. And my quest for beatitude is a quest for him. Charity is the virtue by which we adhere, are united to him directly. When you possess him, the fruit of that is joy. So all of that striving within you finds its fulfillment in divine charity, supernatural charity, supernatural love. Now the two ways that can go wrong, sloth and envy. And both of these are different types of, not joy, but of sorrow. So sloth, sometimes called achadia in the tradition, or, um, or sloth, um, I see the hard work involved in being a saint and I just feel sad. I just feel sorrow. Um, I see the difficulty of getting out of bed in the morning. I know it's the right thing. I know I'll be a saint if I get out of bed in the morning. And I just kind of feel this inner sorrow, sadness at the hard work of being a saint. So I do see that's where God is, where the movement has to be, but rather than rejoicing in that, choosing that, and in that choosing, having a, a union with him and a joy in him, I see it, but the hard work of it, and I experience this sorrow, and sorrow, a sorrow that just moves me to inactivity. And this, technically speaking, is what sloth is type of sorrow that is an enemy, a mirror image of this joy and charity. There's another type of envy that is the enemy of charity, of love, and that's sorrow at our neighbor's good, which you'll see doesn't have a U in it because I'm on this side of the Atlantic. Um, so envy 
I see something my neighbor possesses and rather than rejoicing for him that he's got that perfect water bottle, I instead feel a sorrow at his having it rather than me having it. That I somehow imagine, St. Thomas describes the process, I somehow think that his having it stops me having it. Um, you know, there's a limited number of water bottles around in the world. If he didn't have it, maybe I would. Um, whereas if I love my brother, I see him have it and I'm happy for him that he has it. I have joy as a fruit of love because I love him, love him in God. So envy is a different way in which our failure to find joy in love ends up with sorrow. We all know this dynamic. And it gets weird in how it plays out. You can be envious of your brother's beach body. And somehow that isn't a thing that uh, you can steal from him, like you can steal his water bottle. Um, but rather than rejoicing for my brother at how great his working out's turning out for him, um, I'm kind of sorry, sorrow, sad inside that it's working out for him and it isn't for me. Um, whereas possessing love of him with joy, it all looks different. Now, joy, there's also, we've talked about pleasure. Um, in the virtue of column of virtues, pleasures as good things. So, three pleasures in particular to, to think of. Um, chastity. Um, abstinence with food and play or games. Whereas pleasures also can be a thing that gets habituated badly in vices, um, which would be lust and gluttony, um, So the same pleasures that relate to lust are the pleasures that relate to chastity. The pleasures that relate to gluttony are the pleasures that relate to abstinence. But we're engaging with them differently. And when I have as a kind of overarching thing this joy in charity, everything um, is easy to engage with those pleasures in a measured way. Um, just going to find one example to... Okay, page five of the new bundle from today, halfway down page five, let's look at gluttony. 
Okay, what is gluttony? I say that gluttony is an inordinate desire, unregulated by reason, knowingly exceeding need. And why? For the sake of pleasure. Delectatio in the Latin. Um, whereas St. Thomas says the measure for food or drink should be set by the body's health. Now St. Thomas notes it's rarely a mortal sin because it's not about the ultimate end of God but about a means to it. It can be mortal sin. But Now the thing I want to draw your attention to, gluttony tempts us in five ways. And this is drawing from Gregory the Great. Seeking too much, seeking food that is too fancy or too excessively tasty, seeking food that is too expensive, or seeking food in a way that leads us to act at improper excessive times or in a hasty manner or lacking manners and social consideration. Now, the reason I'm wanting to draw attention to this is it's, we tend to think of gluttony as about just being too much. But too much is only one way of being gluttonous. So I don't know if you've seen that dynamic where a certain type of priest might not eat too much, but they just go to restaurants that are too expensive. That is one way of being gluttonous. Too much money being put on food. Or just being too fussy about the quality of our food. And it's good to enjoy food. It's good to enjoy the quality of food. But we should kind of have a contentment, a detachment, that we're able to enjoy um, the burger at the Rusty Bucket, not just the super deluxe burger at some $100 place downtown. Um, so not just quantity, not just cost, but over fussiness about quality. Um, Is that a technical word, over fussiness? I don't remember what St. Thomas, what the Latin is he's using, but excessive concern for the quality of taste. Um, yeah. Can there be excessive concern about quality of quality of the health food, like the healthness of the food? Yep. So, in the, so that you can be excessively concerned about your health. Your health is not the ultimate goal in life. So therefore, just spending too long looking at the different diet products on the Amazon category of... Um, so yes, we should look at what we're eating. We shouldn't buy unhealthy things, but there's just an obsession that can be disordered and habituated into a bad habit. Okay, last thing, briefly, top of page eight. The little section here on play, or St. Thomas, depending on which translation you're using, sometimes called games. Um, briefly, part of the virtue of poverty, modesty, because it relates act, out, external activity. I say, the soul has limited powers and it needs to rest. Now, where does the soul find rest? I say, in bold, the soul's rest is in pleasure. 
I have some pleasure and there's just something in my soul that goes, ah, a kind of interior rest in the experience of pleasure. St. Thomas, words and deeds delight the soul and this is called play and it's necessary to use it. And I say that play is activity that is purposeless, I say, but not meaningless. Let's correct cricket with baseball. Have you got baseball or cricket in there? Oh, Dick. Well, it's... Wait, you're saying cricket's meaningless? <laughs> no. Um, so Fourth Machine makes this point. When you're playing baseball, it's not meaningless that there are rules and structure and, and the activity has a meaning, but an amateur playing baseball it doesn't have a purpose beyond itself. The professional playing it is about his salary. It's about how he has to live. The amateur is doing it for no purpose beyond itself. And Solzhenitsyn says this is actually what we really mean by play and games. It's just a, a rest, a pleasure in itself. Um, and you can be excessive with it. Play needs to be directed by reason, it must not be indecent, injurious, must not lose balance, it must be appropriate to the person and to the time, it must not become an end in itself. I say we're made for greater occupations than pleasure. Um, so there is a virtue in play, in games. You can have too little of it, you can have too much. If you do not have enough, then it's like a person who doesn't have enough sleep. They cannot function properly. They cannot study properly. They cannot be attentive enough to their neighbor's needs because they're too tired to be looking at others. Um, at the physical level, if you do not have sleep, you cannot live charity properly. At the spiritual level, if you do not give your soul enough rest in pleasure, you will likewise not have the energy to be living that charity. So this is a virtue you also need. Not too little, not too much, and in the right form. Okay, what have we done this last two lectures? The big thing I'm hoping you're taking away is an awareness of how the passions and the virtues relate. That these passions within you move you to things. These passions within you move you to things that either are good or appear good. And when you habituate yourself by repetition, then the judgment in your intellect, the accurate judgment, becomes habituated in your passion so that your passions also move you to that and it becomes easy for your will to choose the right thing. Okay.